as you know, Karen and I have had uh, four children, and having four children means four different times we went through that, that pregnancy and that expectation and anticipation of the delivery day. I, I think that's a great way to think about the second coming of the Lord. Because, you know, when you have that day out there, it's guiding your thoughts, especially as you start getting into month seven, eight, nine. You're thinking about it every day. You're preparing for it every day. But you don't stop living. You still live. You still go to work. You still take care of the house. You you still take care of all of the things that are going on in the world. You still live. But that that day of delivery, that's what's on your heart and mind. That's where you are. There are future events. The arrival of a baby. A a wedding, an anniversary, a retirement. There are events in our life that are so big that even when they're a year away, six months away, they affect our emotions today. Even though they're way out there in the future, we'll be doing work and activity today. Well, we come today to look at the single greatest, biggest, most awesome event of the future. And it's not just an event that can affect our emotions today. God said it's to be our hope. Our our emotions are to be anchored in this future event. This is not just an event that, that we should be preparing or can be preparing and doing things today. We should be. Folks, I don't think there should be a greater truth in life that should be guiding your decisions and activities than the second coming of Jesus Christ to this world. Folks, in many respects, the second coming of Christ is the story of the Bible. You you may not even have realized there's over 1,800 occurrences of the second coming of the day of the Lord, of the coming of God into this world. Over 1,800 occurrences in Scripture. 17 Old Testament books. 17 have as their major emphasis the day of the Lord, the coming of the Lord. If you average it out, seven out of every ten chapters in the New Testament speaks to the coming of the Lord. Folks, this is where the Scripture is moving. This is where human history is moving. This is where life is moving. What is the second coming of the Lord? It is the redefining of this earth. It is the redefining of history. It is the redefining of mankind. This is the big event. This is what it is all about. Have you ever heard somebody say that? This is what it's all about. There's nothing in life that this is what it is all about except the second coming of God. That is what it is all about. And we talk about the second coming that way. Where does the first coming? The first coming was pretty big, wasn't it? Well, yeah, you have to have a first coming before you can have a second coming, don't you? Folks, in many respects... We needed the first coming because what God's going to do in the second coming, we'd be in real trouble if there'd not been a first coming. Jesus came the first time to provide a rescue for us for what is going to happen when God comes the second time. Folks, this is the culmination, the high point of where God and Scripture are moving. Let me show you just a couple of passages uh, that that point to this. I love these kinds of passages. They they get me excited. Look at in Daniel. Look on the screen here. Got a passage in Daniel that I want us to see. This is from Daniel 7. In my vision at night, I looked and there before me was one like the son of man. 
coming with the clouds of heaven, he approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All peoples, nations, and men of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. That's how Daniel saw it. Listen to how Jesus talked about it in Matthew. He says, as the lightning comes from the east and flashes to the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. At that time, the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky and all the nations of the earth will mourn. They will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. He will send His angels with a loud trumpet call and they will gather His elect from the four winds, from one end of the heavens to the other. I mean, these, these passages give me chills. These passages just get me excited. But I don't think any of these passages is quite like what Jesus allowed John the Apostle to see and then record in Revelation chapter 19. Now before we read this chapter, I want, to, I want us to remember the context of where we've been and, and what we've been looking at. Last week we looked at, or two weeks ago we looked at what is the rapture. That when Christ comes in the air for His saints, we, arise, we rise to meet the Lord in the air. We go to heaven for our time of judgment and reward. And at that point, the earth enters what is called the Great Tribulation. Last week, we looked at the, the judgments of the tribulation. You remember, we saw that there's seven seals. That was actually two weeks ago. Remember, Jesus was handed a scroll, and on that scroll there were seven seals. And as Jesus peeled back each one of those seals, it brought a different judgment to this earth. And we got to the seventh seal, and remember what it introduced? Seven more judgments called the trumpet judgments. And an angel would blow the trumpet and it would bring another judgment on this earth. And we went through all seven of those trumpets. And when we got to the seventh trumpet and that trumpet was blown, what did we find? Seven more judgments called the seven bowl judgments. And, and an angel would pour out that bowl on the earth and it would bring a, another judgment on this planet. Well, as we come to the seventh bowl, we come to Revelation 19. That the seventh bowl is the coming of Christ. The seventh bowl is Armageddon. It is the utter and complete and total destruction of this planet. What we're about to read is both awesome and terrifying. And, and as you do that, you read that, you think, no, wow, that's awful. Why? Why is this happening? I want to do a quick review here. Remember, we talked about why is there a great tribulation? Number of reasons, but two great reasons. Number one, the wickedness of man is going to be punished. Folks, nobody, remember this? Nobody's getting away with anything. It looks like it sometimes, doesn't it? Sometimes doesn't it look like, like evil is getting away, that evil's winning the day? Doesn't it look like people can commit sins and there doesn't seem to be any consequences? It looks like, looks like everything's working out just fine. As a matter of fact, sometimes we can fool ourselves that way. We can continue in sin and maybe not see any great consequence for that. Now, ultimately, I do believe consequences are paid today. But whether consequences are paid today or not, ultimately all sin, all evil is going to be dealt with in this moment right here. Why is there a second coming? Why is there a great tribulation? Why does it look like it looks? Because folks, in this moment, that's where God looks at evil and Satan and sin and sinners and says it stops right here. That's why there's a second coming. Another reason is because one way or another, folks, men are going to be prostrated before God. 
One way or another, we are going to give glory to God. Now, don't hear that and and see God pounding his chest and, and trying to show that he's bigger and stronger than the rest of us. Folks, there's nothing more appropriate in your life and there's nothing more appropriate in the world than for you and I to acknowledge our creator, to give him praise, to give him thanks, to acknowledge who he is in our lives. He is our creator. He is our savior. He is our judge. It is right. It is good. It is appropriate to acknowledge that. And likewise, folks, there's nothing more inappropriate than to not acknowledge the creator. There's nothing more inappropriate to act like you are what it is all about. And the only person you answer to is yourself. There's nothing more inappropriate to act like everything in life is the result of your wisdom and the result of your power. One way or another, we are going to give glory to whom it belongs. Now, we have a choice. I can choose before that day. I can choose before that day to acknowledge by faith. That God is my creator. I can choose today to acknowledge by faith that he is my savior. And in so acknowledging and in so putting my faith in him, I get the opportunity to be adopted as his child. I get the opportunity to be forgiven of all my sins. I get to be the opportunity to be a co-heir of this great coming king we're about to read about. Or I can go on in this world thinking I'm just fine as I am. I can do what I want. I can live as I want. I can make my own decisions. I don't want anybody's rules on me. My power, my wisdom, it's working for me. I'm a pretty good person. I think it'll all work out in the end. That person will be forced to bow the knee. And in that force, there will be judgment and there'll be condemnation. Folks, what we're about to read, remember, Jesus is coming into a world that has rejected him at every turn, has rebelled against his grace, has rebelled against his forgiveness, has rebelled against his standard. They have rebelled against him. They have not acknowledged him. They have claimed themselves to be God. That's the world that the second coming enters into. So with that in mind, let's read what this day looks like. Would you turn with me this morning to Revelation chapter 19? Go to the end of your Bible, Revelation. Revelation chapter 19. It's a little bit of a long chapter. We're going to read every word of it. Revelation chapter 19. 19 beginning in verse 1. It says, after this, I heard something like the loud voice of a vast multitude in heaven saying, Alleluia, salvation, glory and power belong to our God because his judgments are true and righteous because he has judged the notorious prostitute who corrupted the earth with her sexual immorality. And he has avenged the blood of his servants that was on her hands. A second time, they said, Alleluia, her smoke ascends forever and ever. Then the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who is seated on the throne saying, Amen, Hallelujah. A voice came from the throne saying, Praise our God, all you His servants, you who fear Him, both small and great. 
Then I heard something like the voice of a, a vast multitude, like the sound of cascading waters and like the rumbling of loud thunder saying, Alleluia, because our Lord God, the Almighty, has begun to reign. Oh, folks, heaven is so excited because the reign of God is going to become visible. The reign of God is going to become clear. You know what? The angels don't understand why God's allowed Satan to get away with it. The angels don't understand why God's allowed you and I to get away with it. Acting like we're in charge. Acting like we're what it's all about. Acting like we own the throne. And heaven says, praise God. Today, today, he reigns. Today, all of human history is going to see. It is God Almighty on the throne. Verse 7, let us be glad. Amen. Amen. We can worship him for that. Let us be glad and rejoice and give Him glory because the marriage of the Lamb has come and His wife has prepared herself. The wife is you and I, folks. The bride of Christ, the church. Verse 8, she was permitted to wear fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen represents the righteous acts of the saints. Then he said to me, Right, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage feast of the Lamb. He also said to me, These words of God are true. Then I fell at his feet to worship him. But he said, Don't do that. I am a fellow slave with you and your brothers who have the testimony about Jesus. Worship God, because the testimony about Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Then I saw heaven opened. And there was a white horse its rider is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness He judges and makes war. His eyes were like a fiery flame. And on His head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knows except Himself. He wore a robe stained with blood. His name is called the Word of God. The armies that were in heaven followed Him on white horses wearing pure white linen. From his mouth came a sharp sword so that with it he might strike the nations. He will shepherd them with an iron scepter. He will also trample the winepress of the fierce anger of God, the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried out in a loud voice, saying to all the birds flying in mid-heaven, Come, gather together for the great supper of God, so that you may eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of commanders, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and of their riders, and the flesh of everyone, both free and slave, small and great. Then I saw the beast, the kings of the earth, and their armies gathered to wage war against the rider on the horse and against his army. But the beast was taken prisoner. And along with him, the false prophet who had performed signs on his authority, by which he deceived those who had accepted the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. Both of them were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. The rest, everybody else on the planet, was killed with the sword that came from the mouth of the rider on the horse, and all the birds were filled with their flesh. And it will happen exactly like that. Oh, folks, how do we even begin to imagine? I don't, I don't think there can, we can come up with a special effect that in any way replicates and does honor to that day that the sky will open up. I wish I could describe it. It just says, heaven opened. And through that hole stepped Jesus Christ on that white horse. You know, that's where the debate ends. 
You say, you say what debate? The, the debate about which one of the religions is right. That, that's where the debate ends on whether Jesus really rose from the dead or not. Think about that, folks. All of humanity really falls into one of two groups. Those of us who by faith believe that Jesus Christ conquered the grave, conquered death, conquered sin on your behalf and on my behalf and rose again showing Himself to be the Son of God. We accept that by faith. Then there are those who mock that idea, reject that idea, most just completely ignore it altogether. You're in one of those two groups. But on that day, the debate ends. There's no, it doesn't take faith on that day to know that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. All will see. The last time they saw Christ, the last time humanity looked on Him, He was beaten and bloodied and bruised on a cross. But on this day, He comes forth on a white horse. That white horse is the picture of, of, a, of a conquering king, a, a victorious general returning home. He comes in victory. He comes conquering. And look at these different descriptions here. As we see Him, you know, what's the first name? What's the first way he's praised? Faithful. Faithful. We have believed for at least 2,009 years his promise that he's coming back. And when we see him, faithful. He's the promise keeper. He's come back and true. That word true there refers to his righteousness, his justice. Oh, folks, how many people across this planet, how many people in this room have at different times in life wondered why didn't God show up? Why didn't God do what He was supposed to do? God's not being fair. God's not being right. If He was loving, if He was kind, He would have done. But when we see Him, all we'll praise Him for is His truth. There'll be no accusation of where He missed it. There'll be no accusation of what He should have done. There'll be praise for who He is and how perfectly He did everything. Faithful and true. Verse 12, his eyes were like a fiery flame. This points to Jesus being all-knowing, all-seeing with his eyesight. He can look at you, he can look at me, he can look at humanity. And with a burning, with a fire, there is a penetrating and a purifying look. Nobody, what did we say? Nobody's getting away with anything. No sin is hidden. No motive is unknown. He sees with a purifying effect. And on his head were many crowns. Where are their rule? Where is their leadership? Where are their positions? They're all on his head now. There is no other rule. There is no other reign. There is no other leadership. He has the right to all rule and authority. And he had a name that no one knows except himself. Isn't that incredible? Folks, God has been so good to let you and I know so much about Him. That there's so much that we know about God and Christ. As a matter of fact, it goes on in verse 13, and it says that His name is the Word of God. That word, Word, is, is the Greek word logos, and it's the revelation. Jesus is the revealing of God. Jesus is the perfect representation of God. In Jesus, we see the mind of God. We see the character of God. We, we see God in His beauty and in His perfection. There is much we can know about God because of His Word. Because of Jesus. But folks, we'll never know everything. And that, that's not just now. Even in eternity, we'll never know everything because you can never pour the infiniteness of God into the finiteness of our mind. 
in His sovereignty, in His supremacy. There are things of God that only God Himself will ever know. That's how big and awesome and incredible your God is. It says here that His robe is stained with blood. We talked a lot in this series about the cost of sin, haven't we? Folks, ultimately the cost of sin is blood. This robe stained in blood is a, a picture, a prefiguring of the blood that is about to pour. Of the blood that is about to be spilt because of sin. Now folks, here again, we don't have to wait for this day. We can place ourselves under the cross of Christ. We can place ourselves under His blood. We can trust that His blood can be the payment for our sins and be forgiven. But if we don't come into that faith, if we don't come under the blood of Christ, then we come under the outpouring of God's wrath that will result in the pouring of our blood. Folks, whose blood do you want paying for your sin? You want to trust in the blood of Christ? Or are you going to trust in your own blood to pay for that sin? says in verse 14 that the armies that were in heaven followed him on white horses wearing pure white linen. Folks, that's us. Every time in Scripture, every time in Revelation that it refers to pure white linen, it's referring to the church. It is the church that is rewarded for her good deeds. It is the, the church that is rewarded with these white linen robes. And it is us. And folks, imagine this. The sky opens. Jesus steps through. And then it's all of a sudden like heaven just bursts and outpours you and I. It just comes cascading and flooding over you and I on these horses with Christ. What a parade! What an exciting day! Can't wait to be there. Oh, for this moment to be riding in this parade. Now, notice something. We've talked about where the tribulation, I mean, where the rapture is. Notice we're already in heaven, aren't we? When the second coming happens, we're in heaven coming with Christ. Remember through this, I've been talking about Jesus coming for the saints and Jesus coming with the saints. The rapture has to have already happened by this time because we're behind him. We're in the parade. We're in the pageantry. We've got the white linen. We've already been rewarded. And we come forth with Him into this moment. From His mouth came a sharp sword. It says that again in verse 21. A sharp sword out of His mouth. Now folks, while we're a, this massive army coming out of heaven with Christ, don't, don't imagine the great battle scenes that, that Hollywood puts together for us. Or we've got soldiers in here that have been in great battle scenes. It won't be like that. He's just going to speak. The sword out of his mouth. He will just speak just as he had the power and authority to speak creation into existence with his voice. He will speak the judgment and condemnation of evil. He will bring the end of evil just with his voice. There will be no great battle in this moment. He will shepherd them with an iron scepter. This refers to an unchallenged rule. The scepter is the place of rule. It's the place of judgment. The iron refers to nothing can break it. Folks, God has a standard. And He has allowed you and I, He has allowed humanity to mock that standard. To ignore that standard. To disobey that standard. To play fast and loose with the standard. Why even us as believers look at the standard and then we decide why the standard's not really the standard for us in our very special and unique situation. 
This is why that doesn't apply to me. This is why I can go ahead and lie right here. This is why it's okay for me to hold on to that anger and bitterness for the rest of my life. This is why it's okay for me to be sexually immoral because this is love. This is a love that this standard doesn't speak to. And we just go through every bit of God's standard and we mock it and rebel against it and ignore it. Folks, there's coming a day where you will not again be allowed to mock, ignore, or disobey God's standard. His standard will be set and everything will come into conformity to that standard. He will trample the winepress of the fierce anger of God. We don't often think of Jesus and fierce in the same sentence, do we? We think of Jesus and gentle, Jesus and meek, and we should. We think of Jesus and loving, Jesus and forgiving, and we should. But it is just as appropriate to think of Jesus and wrath. Jesus and fierce. See, the reason that, that we have a hard time seeing that is because when we think of wrath, we, we, we think of somebody being angry, somebody losing their temper, and we always do that wrong. As a matter of fact, even when my anger is righteous, in other words, it's right for me to be angry in this moment. What I'm angry about is wrong, it's sin, it is right and appropriate for me to be angry about it, but what are the chances I express that anger perfectly? Oh, about one in a thousand. Even when my anger is righteous, we don't do a good job of expressing it. Folks, there are places it is right and appropriate to have wrath. There are places it is right to be angry and to express that anger. And Jesus will do that. And He will do it perfectly. Yes, Jesus is perfectly loving, perfectly forgiving, and Jesus is perfectly wrathful. He will perfectly bring this judgment and condemnation. And on his robe and on his thigh, the thigh, that, that place of power, this strong muscle of the body, on that place will be his name, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords. You know, we enter a room, we always kind of jockey for position, don't we? Who, who's the top dog in the room? You imagine what that's like in one of those G8 summits or, you know, in the in the union building or any of these places. Folks, when Jesus enters the room, doesn't matter what you're king of, doesn't matter what you're boss of, doesn't matter what you own, doesn't matter what you've done, doesn't matter what accomplishment you have. When Jesus enters the room, we only see one leader. When Jesus enters the room, there's only one that is in charge. He is the King of all kings and the Lord of all lords. And then John sees this angel standing in the sun, just a, a picture of the brilliance and, and the burning of God's glory. And this angel invites what is a, a horrific scene in Scripture. All of the birds of creation to come and feast on humanity. The humanity that is gathered here is that we refer to as Armageddon. It's, it's the gathering of the beast. The false prophet, the Antichrist and the false prophet have gathered together the armies of the world. They're warring against each other. But when Christ steps through heaven, the armies will turn their attention to Christ and they will set their mind to war against Christ. Remember, it's into this moment that Christ is entering into a world that has rebelled against him that has rejected Him, that has claimed itself to be God. We learned much last week about that very scary figure, the Antichrist, and, and that mark of the beast. Well, folks, you see right here the future of the Antichrist. You see the future of the mark and all those who take the mark. And did you notice how long it took? 
It wasn't a seven-year war. It wasn't a hundred-year war. He spoke. And the Antichrist and the false prophet were taken into custody and thrown into the lake of fire. He spoke and humanity was destroyed. You say, well, but I'm on a horse. I'm there. What am I doing? Folks, you're eye candy to Christ. You're just a part of the parade. You're a part of the pageantry. We're just there of, of trophies of His. We're not there to fight. We're not there to go over and take care of the flank. He just speaks and it's dealt with. He speaks and it is done. And on this moment, the only people left alive, and we're going to start to talk about this next week when we talk about what is the millennium. The only people left alive now at this point are believers. Remember at the beginning of the tribulation, the church is raptured up. The only people on the planet are unbelievers. But during this seven year time period, people will come to faith in Christ. Very few and most of them will be killed. But those that come to Christ and survive all the way to the end will be the only ones left alive at this moment. So we're going to have a kind of a strange moment here where we've got humans that have already gone to heaven, already gotten their rewards and their immortal body, and then you're going to have humans on earth that still exist in, in, in the temporary body, and we will enter a thousand-year reign. Boy, that's interesting. Come back next week and find out what that's about. Now, what do we do with this today? Let me tell you one thing that God did not put Revelation 19 in the Bible for. He didn't put it there so we'd go, cool. What are we supposed to do with this information? Is it just supposed to awe us? Is it supposed to scare us? Why does God give you Revelation 19? Let me look at seven things very quickly. Seven reasons, seven things you and I are to take away with from here. Seven things we're to do with this knowledge. Number one, the second coming is a glorious event that the whole world, believers and unbelievers, will see. It is a visible, physical return. There are those, you probably don't know many, but there are those beliefs that hold the idea that the second coming of Christ is just a, a spiritual event. Some say it's already happened. A variety of reasons for that, folks. The Scripture points to the second coming of Christ being a very visible, physical thing. You'll know when it happens. Nobody's going to miss it, okay? Number two, there is no threat to the reign of Christ. Folks, do you realize that's all the hope you have for tomorrow? I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. I don't know what's going to happen good. I don't know what's going to happen bad. But I know that nothing that's going to happen tomorrow is going to threaten the rule and reign of Christ and where future is going. Folks, how many things do you have your hope in? Probably a lot. And none of them are certain. None of them are sure. Do you see how we put our hope in things that fail? This is where our hope belongs. Christ is coming back. There is no threat to that. There is no threat to his rule. Number three, I'll refer to this. He comes with the saints to the earth. There's a difference between him coming for the saints, the rapture, and his coming with the saints, the second coming. No, number four, no unsaved person is left alive. That's kind of an awesome thought, isn't it? No unsaved person is left alive. You know, on one hand, that probably gives hope 
some of us, because there's some unsaved people that we're doing all we can to not get revenge. We're doing all we can to wait till God gets revenge. But when we say no one saved person is left alive. We know some of them, don't we? In fact, some of them we. We probably love. And care very deeply about. And if the rapture were to happen tonight, they would not go up. They would enter the great tribulation and most likely land at the second coming. Not to glory in Christ, but to be eaten by birds. You know, Christ said, until I come back, I'm leaving you here for one thing. To be a witness. That's one thing you've been left here for. To be a witness. Number five, there is an end to evil. Isn't that good news? It does come to an end. What you'll watch on the news, what you'll read in the paper, what scares you, what concerns you, what what makes you anxious, what makes you fearful. It does come to an end. God doesn't. There's an end to evil. There is no end to God. Number six, God fulfills his promises. And that's the big one right there, isn't it? Folks, do you realize that what we just read, Revelation 19, is the answer to every single prayer request? Just a moment ago, we paused in silence and I encourage you, invited you, whatever's on your heart, pray it out to the Lord. Do you realize that ultimately the answer to that prayer request is this? Because that's when we won't need any more prayers. That's when all wrongs are made right. That's when all evil is dealt with. When all promises are fulfilled. Number seven, Christ is king. Yay. Woohoo. And we'll come to church Sunday in and Sunday out, and we'll sing praises about God being number one, Christ being king. Okay, but after we do that, so what? How many of you this week lived like you had a king? Subjects don't set their own agenda. Subjects don't decide the way things are going to be. They just report to the king. The king sets the agenda. The king says what we're going to do today. Did you know that subjects don't own anything? You know, I, I think democracy is the only way to live on this planet. But it does make it a little bit hard to understand this, doesn't it? We've never lived in the concept of a king. I I own things. I have rights. Not in a kingdom, you don't. King owns you. He owns everything that you have. You don't decide what you do with you. Oh, well, the Bible doesn't really say that, does it? Check out 1 Corinthians 6.20. It says your body's not your own. You use it for one thing. To glorify the king. Christ is king. If I believe that and I believe he's returning, then the smartest thing I could do is live like it, isn't it? 
Some of y'all are familiar with uh, terms like a bucket list. Things I want to do before I die. Guy made that popular as a movie that made that phrase bucket list popular. But there's a, a book written, 100 Things I Want to Do Before I Die. Written by, I think his name is Dave Freeman. 100 Things I Want to Do Before I Die. Did you know that Dave Freeman died? 47 years old. Hit his head in his house and died. Now, folks, I'm as adventuresome as the next person. I, I'm all for bungee jumping and traveling to places that nobody else has been and, and, and doing things like that. But when we talk about dying, it doesn't matter if you've bungee jumped before you die. It doesn't matter if you've been to Paris before you die. The only thing that matters before you die, the only thing that matters before this great day comes is whether you've acknowledged there's a king and lived like it. And if you've not acknowledged it and you've not lived like it, my friend, you are in deep trouble. But remember, Christ came a first time because God doesn't want you to be in deep trouble. He came the first time to rescue you from what's going to happen the second time. What will you do with that opportunity? Let's pray. Father, I feel the only appropriate thing in this time is a, is a moment of confession and repentance. Because Lord, most of us in this room have said we believe Jesus is King. Most of us in this room have long believed in the second coming. And we, we've believed. Maybe today was a little reminder, a little refresher, but it wasn't news. We knew that. We believed in that. And yet, Lord, we've made decisions all throughout this week that in no way acknowledged any of that. That's why we lied. That's why we pouted. That's why we don't witness. That's why we make every day about ourselves. That's why we entered this house today and the only thing we were thinking of is myself. Will the music bless me? Will the sermon bless me? No thought of coming in here to acknowledge that there's a king. No thought of living out his command to worship and to witness and to serve others. Lord, we confess with our mouth that Jesus is king, but it might be kind of hard to find all the places in life where that's been acknowledged in our actions and in our attitude. I'm very grateful that as a believer, if somebody's put their faith in the cross, I can come before a king and find grace. And I can find mercy and I can find forgiveness. And I have the promise of God that when confession is made, you will forgive. Oh, the opportunity to find the kindness of that king and to escape the wrath of that king. Lord, there are people in this room right now who 
who have not yet placed their faith in the kindness of the king. And it's the wrath of the king that is coming their way. May today they realize that right now is their opportunity. Not sometime in the future, not after they go home and get something cleaned up, not after they take a class, but right now is their day, their opportunity to come and receive the forgiveness of the king. To become a child of the king by their faith in Christ. Lord, if there's anybody in this room that is not ready for death, that is not ready for your coming, would you tell them right now that they're not ready? And call them forth to your patience and kindness. Let none leave here lost. Let none leave here not ready. For those of us that are God, may we leave here today profoundly recommitted to living in every moment, in every relationship, as the subject of the great and coming King. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.